The Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This episode I'll be chatting with Ashley Neal, Development Manager for Space and Satellites at Vocus, and Phil Ridley, CEO of Quasar Satellite Technologies, about the revolution being provided by low Earth orbit satellites. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Grant. Yeah, thank you, Grant. Nice to be here. Excellent. So we'll kick things off with the obligatory first question of, uh, for those who don't know, uh, let's tell us about yourselves, uh, the companies and the work you're doing together. So Ash, can you start off by telling us about Vocus? Sure. So Vocus is an Australian company um, recently uh, acquired by uh, Macquarie and Aware Super, taken off the stock exchange. Um, We've got a history of delivering fibre infrastructure in Australia. We operate about 30,000 kilometres of fibre, a national network, uh, building a couple of really interesting offshore and West Coast fibre projects at the moment, investing about a billion dollars to upgrade our uh, fibre infrastructure over the um, short-term future. Okay. And uh, so a lot of comms and things like that. So uh, Vocus now with satellites, um, what got you into the space game? We found that we were actually already in it. So a lot of our customers were delivering uh, services connected to satellite teleports, you know, running traffic across our network that was that was connecting into space assets. Uh, we want a, a a pretty interesting project with Defence to connect some of their ISR sites, and and that kind of made us realise that the thing that we do really well, which is running very high availability critical infrastructure, that's an ongoing demand and requirement within the space industry. So that's just really about paying attention to what we're doing as opposed to changing what we're doing. Um, we're really good at building uh, bespoke infrastructure, you know, building landing stations, building subsea cable. That's a that's a complicated uh, piece of work. Uh, and so we're able to take some of those skills and redirect them into the space industry. But where we kind of got our legs was uh, when some LEO constellation operators came to Australia and wanted to build their infrastructure here. They needed a geographically ver- diverse network uh, to build their gateways on. And that's exactly what we were able to provide for them. So, you know, during COVID, they couldn't come to Australia and find locations. Uh, we're, we're really good at land access. We're really good at building things across the country. And so we were able to build a bunch of infrastructure for them. Okay. Phil, can you tell us about Quasar Satellites? Yeah. Um, so Quasar Satellite Technologies is a spin out of CSIRO Radio Astronomy. And um, what we're doing is we're taking some of the technology developed for uh, radio astronomy, deep space, and uh, repurposing that for the satellite industry. So they've developed um, a phased array antenna, which uh, has many, many beams, and uh, we're going to use that in ground station to talk to satellites in uh, LEO, MEO, and GEO, and that'll be a world first. We'll be able to talk to hopefully 100 satellites simultaneously in the same antenna. And that's fantastic for uh, space communications, but also for space surveillance, so we can keep things safe up there. So it really is a... Yeah, a bit of a groundbreaker for us and we're looking forward to going live. Yeah, space situational awareness is a major thing these days uh, with active and, um, shall we say, derelict bits of uh, gear up there. So, uh, no, that's that's good to hear. So, gentlemen, Vocus and Quasar, comms, satellite, tell us how you're working together. Yeah, as Quasar was being formed at a CSIRO, there was some cash investment, uh, there was some in-kind investment and uh, I think quite rightly so, the Quasar board went out into the uh, marketplace and found organisations that had an interest, so organisations that were 
launching and operating satellites that had um, software packages that could support what Quasar was trying to build uh, and also had some expertise in building and operating gateways, which is the business that Quasar is in. And what's interesting is that we had actually identified that one of the issues that Quasar solves, which is being able to aggregate the capability of a whole bunch of geographically diverse gateways into a single site, yeah, that's a that's a problem that we already saw on the horizon because we were frankly filling up our fiber with gateways from for several operators, and so uh, the opportunity came together perfectly for us to get involved with Quasar, and so we have a small share in that, and in return for that, we're um we're helping them with transmission and and some of their uh, their infrastructure. Yeah, so Vocus is one of our founding members, as we call it. And uh, what we needed is, you know, we're focusing on a very, very complicated piece of technology and we need to deploy this in Australia first and then around the world. And when we spoke to the Vocus guys, we, we got the feeling that we really needed somebody with the best fibre network in Australia and somebody that really understood, you know, the, the complexities of deploying um, large infrastructure. And so Vocus was an obvious choice for us. So we worked together closely on that. We build the antenna and Vocus is supplying the infrastructure for us and that's really a, a win-win for both sides. Fantastic. Great to hear that you're working so well together on this project. And the project's all about LEO, low Earth orbit. So why are, for those who may not know, why are low Earth orbit satellites particularly significant? Yeah, I think that so Australia's always been a, a strong consumer of satellite technology just because of our size. We've run programs to to fund satellite projects here, to fund satellite networks into remote communities. And so we have some skill sets around satellite. It hasn't got into the mainstream. And I think the reason it hasn't come into the mainstream is latency and price points. So if you could afford a, a satellite service, you that you had a high risk, a high value operation. So you were prepared to spend the money and deal with some of the, the lacking features or attributes of that link to make sure that you were connected to keep that asset safe or those people safe. With lowest orbit, you now have low latency, high throughput, it feels like a terrestrial service for all intents and purposes. So if I'm running a business and I want to connect my users anywhere in the world they want to operate, for them, it, it feels like a utility service for them. And I think that's what's bringing Leo into the mainstream. I mean, for us, it's really a thing about cost and physics. You know, So Leo satellites, of course, are closer to the earth, they move um, but they're getting cheaper. So the access to space is really changing. You know, you can get satellites up there for less than $10,000 a kilogram in low Earth orbit. And so what that does is, what we see anyway, is it makes a whole new new business models possible that weren't there before. You know, there's, we're seeing cloud and edge move to space now. We're seeing new sensors out there. We're seeing a lot more powerful um, Earth imaging capabilities. Um, and there's a whole lot of things that are interesting about them. You know, they, they move. You can have lots of them. So they can be redundant. You can cover the whole Earth. Uh, and they're closer because they're closer. Latency is lower. So things like internet and those sort of high-speed um applications are really beneficial for, for LEO. So LEO really does change the whole way space works, in my view. And we've all heard about uh, Elon's Starlink and and the work he's doing there. So you've also got satellites communicating with each other, not just up and down. So satellite to satellite comms is now a thing. Is that that's pretty big in, in the LEO constellations? Uh, it's 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 getting there. That's right, ISL as they call it. Yep. So, and that's also part of cloud as well. You know, so you need to be able to distribute where the computing is and be able to communicate. And you know, sometimes you you can't talk to a ground station when you want to, and so you can relay through other satellites. So that's definitely part of it. It's becoming you could basically say it's becoming fully connected up there. A total mesh. And it's just interesting space. thing to add to that. Grant is you know, light moves faster in space than it does through um, glass. 
And so there actually is opportunities to have a faster connected service in space than you can get on ground. And you know, for things like stock trading is an obvious one where latency, you know, the milliseconds of latency equals dollars. Uh, space and, and inter-satellite links, that creates an opportunity for them. Uh, we're also seeing some constellations who are leaning into um, optical inter-satellite links. You know, they're, they're using it as not only a way to load balance the capacity on their network, but also provide some resiliency. So what Phil said earlier, you know, if, a, if a satellite has a failure, you can hop to the next satellite in the constellation. Um, and that failure could be a technical failure, it could be a malicious failure. And so just because you have a high number of satellites in space, you're able to provide some resiliency. And some of these other um, constellations that are launching the marketplace, uh, they're offering the capability for the user to control where the transmission goes from a terminal. So you can deploy a terminal out into the field and you can think of the application in a defense context, deploy a terminal out into the field, you, you select, I don't want to traverse any foreign infrastructure. And I want to I want to route that traffic through space and land that at a gateway that I'm familiar with and comfortable with. No, that that sovereignty of data access and so on is a major uh, major thing these days. It's a thing. So we're talking about constellations, and uh, just on a side note, that there is some concern on the ground from the ground based astronomers about as these constellations increase, they get more satellites going through their um, ground based imagery and so on of space. Uh, are you able to talk about what's being done to address that, to reduce the the flare and the light tracks and things like that? Um, I can I can add a bit on the on the radio side. Um, no, you're right. Um, one of the problems for radio astronomy is satellites doing selfies in front of things that you're trying to look at, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's a bit of a problem, right? And uh, yeah. it's it's getting more and more interesting. There's there's really two effects. One is you know the radio spectrum, if you like, is being um, affected by them, and of course the visual one as well, right? So. Um, on the radio side, the way to fix that is obviously to use different radio channels and be a lot fussier about how that is used. And on the Earth, you know, spectrum is very valuably and carefully managed for good reason. And we're starting to see more of that in space. It's it's good, but it can be improved. So there's a few things to do there. On the on the physical, you know, uh, reflectivity of satellites and so on, we're going to see satellites that deliberately are reflective, so you can see them. But then you'll see satellites that are deliberately not reflective, so you can't see them, or you know, it's so harder to see them. And so that's it's an ongoing problem. And I think to, to the way to, to manage it is really, if objects are carefully catalogued and done properly, we can actually predict where they are, and then we can pick the best windows to do things with. Um, that should be the case for everything up there, but we know that's not true today. Yeah, which does bring us back to the space situational awareness. So. Um, I know from previous discussions on this show and outside the show that uh, defence is very big in space situational awareness. So that leads us to the next major question, which is what benefits could defence and defence industry obtain from low Earth orbit satellites in both the near term future and also long term, looking out a number of years? I think the idea of having a utility style service on its own just provides a real tactical benefit. And so, the again, the idea that you, you can to take commercial off-the-shelf products, both that they, they can be applications and they can be connectivity, and then quickly deploy your teams anywhere in the world, get online, get connected, and, and start operating uh, using commercial services. That That's a tactical advantage. And, and naturally, we all refer to Ukraine as an example of where that's been used very well. And you know, military communications providers have seen that as an opportunity and say, how can we leverage public networks because what we're finding is that, you know, when forces go into a, 
uh, a region, they don't want to take down the mobile phone network because uh, they want to use it. And they don't necessarily want to take down the, the Leo network because they want to use it. So how do you how do you operate within that environment? Uh, make yourself invisible, you know, this concept of obfuscation, uh, and still operate tactically. So, so there's an opportunity there. And what that does is I think it creates a sense of comfort that the technology works and it's reliable. And, and once that happens, then it's, well, what can we do with it? And so if, if you look down the barrel of the different constellations that are coming into the marketplace now, Starlink we all know about, but OneWeb's a year away from launching. Telesat have their light speed product and Amazon Kuiper's a little bit further away. But you know, naturally, all of them are going to be a little bit technically more advanced as they release because they're looking into the marketplace, seeing what the demand is and, and, and trying to fill the little gaps as they're created. And I mentioned earlier some of the key features of Telesat's light speed product. Yeah, that has some 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 really advanced routing and and security features that militaries will say, well, you know, I'll take the comfort that I have on Leo that's available today, and I'll use that in another smart way. But again, I think it's I think it's just one more communication bearer that the, the military can use to stay connected. It's not the only one. Yeah, I might just uh, add to Ash's comments if I can. And and Ash is dead right. You know, space has always been dual use, and that, there's a obvious reason for that. Um, we've mentioned Ukraine, you know, wars are all about who wins the information war first. You can't win a war if you can't see what's going on. And, you know, that, the, the organisation with the best situational awareness is at an enormous advantage, right, which is why, you know, LASL has been so important in Ukraine. Um, so obviously the benefits are more timely data um, and redundancy. So we have to remember that assets in space um, can be targeted. We've seen this before. We've seen um, satellites being, you know, removed kinetically and uh, dazzled and other things that can happen to them. And so having lots of them and with redundancy obviously adds adds to that uh, capability. Um, I mean, there's a few other things too. If you look at Australia specifically, we're an island. We communicate with the world largely by fibres coming out of four cities. Um, now, I'm not saying those fibres because they would be damaged by any reason whatsoever, but if they all were simultaneously, we're off the air. And so how else could we communicate with the world? Space. You know, so that's a specific example for Australia. So really the benefits for Australia are probably more important than a lot of other organisations, I would argue, or other, other countries indeed. Now, we've, we've quite often seen in the movies and in promos and so on, the soldiers setting up the parabolic dish and pointing it into sky and so on. I'm guessing that with the, the LEO constellations, uh, you don't really need to do that anymore. It's just a, a basic antenna unit and it self-positions. Is that right? Or is it like a GPS where it's listening all the time no matter where? Those phase array antennas, uh, flat panel electronically steered antennas, uh, they're changing the battle space for sure. You know, the idea that you can in three minutes with not a lot of skills, it just enables every soldier to be a communicator. Um, you don't necessarily have to have your specialist skill set out in the field You're carrying those parabolic antennas with them. Um, you know, they become a highly protected asset like the medic in your group. If you can't communicate, you can't necessarily save lives or call in for help. So everybody has the ability to do that. Um, but you touch on something, Grant, is the terminal market is changing as well. And so the Starlink have built their own phased array antennas. It's it's uniquely theirs. You can't use it on anyone else's and no one else's antenna system can be used on their network. But I think that may change. And certainly the other operators are leaning into the commercial market to say, you know, how do we engage with the industry, get a whole bunch of antenna systems working on our network, type approved on our network. You know, that creates an opportunity for 
you know, single antenna systems to point to several different constellations at once. That, again, provides some more resiliency. And yeah, the issue with satcoms in the past for so long is yeah, we've seen people both in military and, and enterprise, there's almost the assumption that we need to prepare for what happens when the satcom service doesn't do what we want it to do. I don't think that's necessarily a real fear that's founded in in reality, but people are, just don't see that as yeah, it's not a it's not a fiber, it's not a it's not connected physically, so we have to assume it's not reliable. But with Leo, I think there's just this emotional shift that will happen because it'll perform like a fiber connection. They'll it, people will take it for granted, and then you really need resiliency, and not just in the constellation itself but in all the services that wrap around the constellation how do you support it do you have the right training are the people there to make sure that works do we have the ability to to use different equipment if we need to and replace it fix it out in the field so you know resiliency is a a really layered approach to making sure those services work and kind of once something's treated as utility like electricity it's it's never going away yeah take it for granted when it's there and uh and when it goes you 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 implode (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, we've seen that in a few blackouts uh, in the last few years. But uh, but again, that's um, something Defence does quite well is the risk assessment, the risk management Absolutely. and looking for those single points of failure, like you mentioned with electricity and having backup supplies, generators, things like that. Also for your comms, you've got to presume that every form of comms will be jammed, blocked or broken somehow and have the ability to fall back or switch over to others. So having the redundancy and having the multiple um, capabilities on the one unit is is one way of going towards that. So definitely some uh, good stuff coming up there. So let's step sideways and, and look at Australia's space economy as a whole. Uh, what do you gents think could be done better to grow the space economy for Australia? Uh, start with yourself, Ash. I think it's been a bugbear of the industry that there's there's no fresh fresh blood coming into it, and so you know one of the uh, I think the unintended effects of having such a famous face in front of SpaceX, you've got Elon Musk who, you know, there's just so many fanboys and girls of of <laughs> that individual. You know, he does his own marketing for that for his two companies that are famous. So, but what it does is it gets people to want to work in the space industry. Um, you know, I think SpaceX is the is the number one employer of choice for uh, people leaving university in, in STEM degrees in the US, probably in the world. And, and people plan for that from their high school years to get to work at SpaceX. I don't think that was the case 15 years ago. People wanted to work in the space industry and, and you're now seeing you know, at conferences and so forth a lot less grey hair and a lot more um, younger ideas. And, and what that means is... Um, that's, that protects the next generation. So I, I think what what we need to do is make sure that we have enough of an industry here in Australia that can attract and retain that talent here and here. Because traditionally, what happens is we we have some discrete industries, but people hit the limit of their experience there, and they have to go offshore to get additional skills. I think what we're doing with the the major defence satellite programs at the moment. It's building in a fantastic capability, but a bit like the Snow Mountain Hydra scheme, it's also building a huge economy here in Australia. And what will come out when the end of this program, not every business will survive. That's the case, but there'll be some great businesses that survive in the middle of that. And there'll be some skills and some ideas. And hopefully that'll perpetuate an industry in and of itself. No, that's a good point. And Phil, yeah. uh, care to build on that? Um, yeah, I think. 
That's really hit it the nail on the head. I think the major challenge for us is really getting the right number of skilled people in Australia in the space industry. Luckily, we're a technology nation, but, you know, we're, we're a nation of, you know, 20-odd million people. That's very, very important. So we need to have that built up and it'll feed on itself. After a while, you know, we're going to have the, the infrastructure and the manufacturing and all the other things that we need to get a viable space industry. But in its early days and, you know, Australia's always been in the space industry, but we've generally been supporting the US. And then to get our own industry going, you know, direct government support is obviously very important, um, but also industry support as well. And Australia being small needs to work together. So I think we're, we're, we're hoping that, you know, we'll see this um, continued commitment to space that the previous government have, and we're hoping that the current government will follow that through. Um, you know, and the other thing I think that we can do in Australia is we have a unique and valuable global location, actually. And so we should really be leveraging that amongst all of our partners around the world to say we are, we are in the right part of the world, we're stable, you know, we're in a fantastic orbital position, so let's use that. So hopefully we can bring some overseas funding and, and people in as well to, to help, you know, feed the local industry. I think we are starting to see that too because you've got far north Queensland and you've got uh, South Australia for polar. Mm. So, yeah, it, it is starting to happen, isn't it? I, I agree. I, and I think it's worth commenting that the forming of the space agency has been a brilliant idea, right? They've done some yeah, amazing work in just bringing the industry together and elevating it. You know, I think there's a, for a long time, everybody wanted to get on the, the space agency bandwagon just because it couldn't do anything wrong. It's exciting and it's enthusiastic and there's, there's nothing they, – they weren't trying to do anything malicious or controversial. They were just trying to bring an industry together and, and elevate us all together. And the space agency has done some great things advocating for the Australian industry internationally. My observation is Australia isn't great at exporting ideas. And you can sort of see that um, anecdotally when you go to, to international conferences. Just kind of a lack of vision of what the Australian space industry is and where we can be the best in the world. And, and I think that's, that's certainly changing. And that comes down to a cultural thing, just having a high degree of confidence that we can play with the rest of the world and be world-class in our own right. Um, and that's just got to shift. And I think what needs to happen is you need to have some success stories in there. So mm. the people that, that the industry can look to and say, I want to be just like them. You know, one of our partners in Quasar is a company called Fleet. And, and they've, you know, they're such a great success and they've got so much uh, coverage at the moment, but they're a long time to get to where they are, you know, and these minor pivots along the way to work out who they are. But now they're they're a, uh, a really a shining star of the Australian, Australian space industry. It's the famous uh, five five to ten years to become an overnight success, right? Exactly. That's dead right. No, well, at least at least now I, I I will say we've got the government awareness uh, that there is an industry, there is a market, and that this is a big thing. Uh, there's been many who have been saying it since I, I remember since the '80s that I was aware of it and watching it as a kid and wondering why we're not jumping all over it. And it's just great that we finally are. So, no, thank you for those those answers about the growing the economy. I think that's that's some really good observations there. We're going to shift into a slightly more detailed area now, which is about launch providers. So here in Australia, the launch provider certifies their own payloads, whereas other countries, they ask the payload provider to perform that certification. Out there kind of question, but do you think Australia should change its model to align with the rest of the world? So personal opinion, I think aligning with the way the rest of the world do things is not a bad thing. Yeah, it helps us share ideas. Uh, they've been doing it for a little bit longer than us. Maybe we want to work out why they're doing it that way. But, you know, m my thoughts are I think our regulatory environment around 
everything we're doing, the whole space value chain, it's learning and it's growing up. You know, we've got some very unique challenges for us to deal with. We also have some super opportunities. We've got some great areas north of Australia to launch Equatorial. Obviously, we've got some launch capability into Polar already. There needs to be a regulatory environment about that. We need to work out how we can import rockets into our country if we don't build them here and get around the regulatory environment of that. So, yeah, but that's that's just a, I think we need to, we're just growing up. And, and naturally, we all want to do, oh, maybe we can do it a little bit better. Um, but just, again, being different all the time doesn't necessarily mean that's better. Indeed. That's, I think it's early days for us. You know, ultimately, Australia will probably align with the rest of the world because we tend to do that. Australia is actually highly regulated in general across most industries. We're famous for it, you know, aviation being a classic example, but banking yep. being another, you know. Yep. Um, so there's a recent agreement that's come out spearheaded by the US and the UK that talks about responsible life cycle management for objects in space and not just payloads, but it's talking more about, you know, the launch phase and then the decommissioning phase, you know, burning up or pushing out to graviate orbit. So I think for that, payloads essentially becomes part of that. So I think part of Australia's mantra should be responsible space. We should make space sustainable and really push that as one of our, our mantras, if you like. And I think we're working towards that. But, you know, it, it's related to the certification of payloads, but also the things sending up to space. So I think uh, it'll it'll be inevitable for Australia, but Australia also has an, uh, an opportunity here to lead the way in responsible space. That's what I'd like to see. Yeah, I know the um, Kiwis with Rocket Lab are doing a lot with uh you know, ecologically friendly as as close as possible when you're blasting into space. So, yeah, and, and the Australian, some of the Australian companies are getting into that as well. So, yeah, that would be a, a good a good way to be uh, seen to be leading is uh, is championing the uh, sustainable use of space. I like that. So, final major question: Is there much venture capital interest in Australia's space sector? Are you aware of many uh, seed funding and and capital being available for companies in this market? Yeah, there is a venture capital uh, space industry sort of uh, support in Australia. It's not huge. You know, as the risk profiles in Australia tend to be much lower than overseas in US and so on. But we've been fortunate, so we've been um, seed funded and fully supported by Main Sequence, which has been fantastic for us. And Main Sequence, um, uh, extremely skilled at its commercialising what I would call deep tech and bringing that to market. So that's so we're fortunate there. You know, some of the other Australian space companies also have had good seed funding support, Gilmore and, and Fleet that Ash mentioned earlier. So, yes, um, the pool is smaller in Australia and it's obviously, um, you know, it hasn't got the anywhere near the sort of uh, volume that we see overseas. But there is there is venture capital in Australia and if the business case is, uh, is good and they, and they believe in the management, yeah, you can get it. And we've seen examples of that. Good to know it's out there. And yes, Main Sequence uh, encountered them in a number of food tech worlds as well as the uh, space tech and so on. If I can make just a comment on that, on the, the funding area, um, you know, the satellite industry, one of the, one of the big customers for the satellite industry has always been the mining marketplace. And, and you know, one of the observations, yeah, there was a time during the mining boom, you just had to say that you had an asset and you could find some money. And I, I think we're seeing a little bit of that and probably led out of the US venture capital marketplace. But because space is getting so much attention and people are seeing use cases for the application of space technology, I think in small cap, that marketplace, we're seeing little bits of money, people, you know, big venture capital firms looking at these these small micro investments into space startups just to see, well, who's going to make it to the top? What are the industries that are going to be that are going to work because it's it is 
a blue ocean industry at the moment. People don't know w- what's going to work and what isn't. All they're seeing is, and quite frankly, SpaceX has done so much for the space industry in legitimising it and bringing it out into the mainstream. You know, for myself, I've been in the space industry for 15 years at a pub, at a party. What do you do? It's, it takes me 25 minutes to explain the industry that we're in. Um, you don't have to anymore <laughs> because <laughs> everyone's an expert on on space because of uh, the marketing that SpaceX has done for us. Um, so, you know, I think that that venture capital is uh, is changing and certainly some of the, the uh, investors in traditional industry, even a lot of high net worth, Money is going into the um, space industry. I've certainly seen that a lot in Australia. Okay, gents. Well, it's time to wrap up. Is there any last thing that you'd like to say while we've got you here? I think the only comment I'd make is, you know, an observation that I have around just the Australian space industry is that we do a lot of innovation, but we're not necessarily fantastic at promoting ourselves uh, in in doing it, which I think is a, is a shame. And uh, I know I've heard on previous podcasts, ADM podcasts, always this topic of sovereignty comes up and why it's important for us to have a sovereign space industry. And I think we're doing it naturally because if you look at that whole space value chain from the design, launch, operation, but also the the downstream, how do we use that data and take better – like we're world-class in so much of that already. If you look at the stuff that Geoscience Australia is doing around the, the use of space data and they're making some big investments in the space industry, it's I don't know if that's promoted well enough, but they're certainly taking advantage of that. The stuff that Quasar is doing in being able to connect to such a high number of space assets, that's going to give – the community, so the, the the industry here in Australia, just access to more data. And once we have access to more imagery data, more communications data, and all the different new technologies that are coming out of these small, discrete satellites that are launching, yeah, we have the opportunity to, to be world-class. But I think what we've done really well is solved the problem for ourselves, you know, that, that one little business that wants to fix problem, and we, we don't do enough of, well, how can we make a business out of this? Yeah, you know, and maybe that's a cultural shift, but you know, an observation is we don't we're not great at doing it, but we do have some great innovation that's available in the marketplace. Well, I think that's a pretty good place to uh, cap the episode right there, gentlemen. Thank you very much for coming on the show and having a chat with us. Thanks, Grant. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Grant. And of course, thanks to everyone out there who's been listening once again. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can follow this podcast in your favorite podcatcher to ensure you get every episode as they're released. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative episode. The ADM podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.